As we talk about uh, our good, good father, um, as we experience that and uh, uh, just think about what that means, that, that God is a good father, uh, there's a thing that, uh, that comes up, and, and that's this idea of God being a God of wrath. And, and we have sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but we have sometimes a hard time of, of thinking about God as being wrathful. And God is being good at the same time. And this is exactly where, as we're looking at the, the latter half of uh, verse or chapter 1 of the book of Romans and looking into the, the beginning of the, the second chapter of Romans, this is where Paul has us focusing our attention. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, last week, uh, Al, as he was preaching up here, did share a little bit about the wrath of God. And we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper today. And so if you're thinking that sounds like it's not a, a, a wonderful topic, uh, there's, an, there's a degree to which you're right. It's hard to talk about the wrath of God sometimes, uh, and yet it's a necessary and it's actually a good thing. So let me pray and we'll get into this message. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to open up your Bible. Uh, we thank you that you have spoken to us through it. Uh, I thank you that we get to consider who you are um, in all of your glory, I'd ask that you would speak to us through your spirit and through your word uh, so that we might understand uh, more fully uh, just your magnificence and the incredible thing, uh, the incredible gift that we have in our Lord Jesus. I'd ask this in his name. Amen. Hopefully this will work. Yeah, there we go. So some of you are familiar with mythology, Greek mythology. I don't know if we've got any Greek mythology fans, but, but one of the themes that runs through Greek mythology is this idea of the wrathful gods. And it's super arbitrary in Greek mythology, and we should probably expect that because it's really it's a throw together of, of human ideas made into stories that try to make sense of the universe. But uh, you may have heard the story of Prometheus who gives fire to mankind and then so he is condemned by Zeus to, to suffer eternal torment where there's a bird that comes down and attacks him every day. And, and that's his lot for the rest of eternity because he helped out humankind. Uh, you may be familiar with the story of Sisyphus who is uh, this guy as a human being that is uh, actually able to trick the gods. And when they figure out that he's, he's tricked them, he is condemned to roll this giant stone up a hill. And right before he gets to the top, what happens? It rolls back down. And then he's got to do the same thing over and over and over again. And so that's his punishment. That's the wrath of the gods on him. You may not be familiar with this story. I was, and I just kind of did a little search for wrathful stories in mythology. I heard about this lady named Io, who was just a, an ordinary person, actually seemed like a pretty, pretty good lady. She was beautiful, and so Zeus took a, a liking to her, and uh, so he said, well... Uh, I'm going to seduce her, and she resists him for a while, and then he finally, he, uh, or she finally gives in to him. And in order to hide her from Hera, who is Zeus's wife, Zeus turns into a white cow. Now, how's that for good luck, huh? So she's now a white cow, so Hera figures this out, so she sends stinging flies to chase Io wherever she goes for, for forever. So eventually that kind of gets worked out. But, again, we see this, this kind of arbitrary wrath of the gods, these powerful beings that, that do these things to people uh, for really no good reason. And then the last story we've got here to kind of think about is this guy named Acteon who is just out hunting. And he happens on this little pool out in the forest. And who happens to be there? But it's the god Artemis who is bathing. 
And he's not trying to do anything. He's not sneaking a look or anything. He just kind of walks out and goes, whoa. And, and because he saw her while she was bathing, she condemns him to be turned into a stag. And so this picture shows him growing horns. He gets turned into a deer, and his hunting dogs attack him and kill him. Okay? So, so that's kind of the, the, some pictures that we have of the wrath of God as we consider uh, what happens when uh, mighty beings are able to exercise the, their, their anger on human beings. And, of course, those are all made-up stories, but behind all these made-up stories, there's this reality that impacts all of us. If there really is a God out there, and he really is all-powerful, okay, what if he gets mad at me? That might be a bad thing. Right? And so there's a reality that we all uh, think through as Christians. What if I've done something really, really wrong? And the Bible is not silent on this at all. It talks very clearly about the wrath of God. And so we're going to read through that a little bit here as we go through Romans, uh, starting at verse 18 of chapter 1. If you've got your Bible there, I'd encourage you to follow along. If not, it'll be on the screen here as well. And, uh, and that's what I'll read from. So starting in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, right, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we talked about this somewhat last week, but it's key to, to put in context that Paul is talking about there's this wrath from God that is against those who are unrighteous. And that's really what all this whole section is talking about. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another." men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We'll pause here for just a second. So Paul starts off saying, hey, God's wrath comes on those who are unrighteous. And and people are unrighteous because although God is evident in creation, they choose to ignore him. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and so they do all this bad, bad stuff. And if you're like me, you have a tendency to read through this and say, yeah, that's what they do, right? Um, But Paul won't let us get away with that. God won't let us get away with that. If we continue reading into chapter 2, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul will not let us say, hey, those people do these things and therefore they should be condemned. The Bible here, God here is telling us, hey, you who recognize that this stuff is wrong, don't you do the very same things? And the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, and so he goes on. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So we have in this passage so many things that we could dig into deeply, uh, but the the overriding theme of God's wrath and God's, God's fury brings up a question I think that is super important for us to to dig into a little bit, and that's the idea that can a good God, a a God for whom we say, you're a good, good father, can he also be a God of wrath? Does that work? And if it does, how? And if it does, where does that lead me? So to kind of dig into that idea, I want us to, to look at these three things from this passage. First, what's God's wrath all about? Second, is God's wrath really fair? And who experiences God's wrath? So if we ask the question, what's God's wrath about? Most simply, God's wrath is a necessary outcome of judgment. Uh, We can't get away from the fact that when you judge, if something doesn't meet the standard that you're judging by, it's a bad thing. Uh, Paul talks about this in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. He talks about the unrighteousness that God's wrath comes against. In verses 18 to 25, he goes through this very clear explanation that people suppress the truth. They walk away from what is obvious, okay? and that is part of the reason why God's wrath is, is brought against them. Uh, verses 29 to 31, which we'll look at in some more detail in just a minute, are, is this list of bad, bad stuff, the things that would deserve judgment. Um, and if we were to read on a little bit further, we didn't just for, for time, but if we read on to verse 24 of chapter 2, you would see that Part of what happens is when we as followers of God, as nominal followers of God anyways, claim to follow him and then do these wrong things, that God himself is blasphemed. So there's all these things that happen uh, that deserve judgment, and wrath is a a necessary part of uh, that judgment. God has to judge if he is good. If you can imagine a world where God was not a judge, you're imagining a world where Hitler and Mother Teresa are on equal footing. Right? And that just kind of naturally we go, there's no way. Right? That's because we all acknowledge that judgment needs to be made. Uh, some of you have probably seen uh, recently in the news, there's a guy named, uh, uh, oh, sorry, um, this was a while back, uh, a guy named Jeffrey Winder, okay, 
2017, he actually punched a guy on national TV. Right? And so he was seen punching this guy on national TV. He was arrested. He was charged. Uh, he went before a jury of his peers. They watched the video. They said, yes, you definitely did it. And so uh, as punishment for punching this guy, your fine is $1 and no jail time. So why did this happen? Well, there's a backstory about why everybody thought the guy that got punched deserved it. But here's what I want you to think about. Okay? If I have judgment and there's nothing behind the judgment, uh, the judgment doesn't mean anything. So when we consider the wrath of God, we're considering the fact that if there really are bad things, then God has to do something about it if he is good. Sometimes we run into this question in our own brains. Sometimes we run into this question from other people. How can I believe in a God who would condemn people? Right? It's a, it's a natural question to ask. For those of you that are a little older, you'll recognize this guy. Okay? But in 1995, the fellow in orange, Timothy McVeigh, drove a truck up in front of the Alfred P. Murray building in Oklahoma City, and it was, it was filled with literally thousands of pounds of explosive. He walked away from it and detonated it. 168 people died, including 19 kids that were at a daycare. There was like 680 people that were injured. It was a horrendous, horrific act. Right? So Timothy McVeigh went to trial. Imagine what would have happened if he had come to trial and the judge had said, this is what you're accused of, and he said, I understand, judge, but I am so sorry for what I did. I realized that what I did was wrong. Uh, and the judge said, oh, well, well, since we see that Mr. McVeigh is so remorseful, we're just going to let him off. All of us would go, you can't do that. Or what if Timothy McVeigh had come in and said, you know what? I've spent the last six months in jail waiting for this, this trial, and I saved a guy using CPR, and I led 500 Bible studies, and, and I swept the floors every day, and I was really kind to my, my jailers and everything. I've done so much good stuff. And the judge said, oh, since you did all that good stuff, we'll just ignore the 19 children that you killed, right? We would say that is absolutely unjust. And so when we ask the question, how can God condemn people, okay, the answer is that a good God can condemn people who have really done wrong. And that's exactly what we want to see in real life and exactly what we see in God himself. Everyone wants to see justice. It's a natural human thing. It's part of the image of God in us, I believe, is that we, have, we seek after justice. And if we want a God who is not wrathful, we are asking for a God who is not just. Uh, but just because God is wrathful doesn't mean he's necessarily just. We, we've all seen circumstances where judgment is not good. Okay, So... Some of you will recognize this gentleman as well. Hey, O.J. Simpson. On national TV, one of the probably the most publicized trials ever, uh, and a large uh, number of people thought when he was uh, going through the trial, oh, man, he is so guilty. And then when he was acquitted, people said, oh, my gosh, how did he get off? Okay. And then he, he was subsequently found guilty in a civil trial, and so people said, yeah, see, we knew he was guilty, and yet he got off in, in this first trial. Uh, do we know for sure whether he was guilty? No, but the preponderance of the evidence for most people was, hey, it looks like he just got off with killing his wife. And that's bad judgment, right? You probably don't know this guy. Okay? This guy's name is uh, Jathan Kendrick. Last November, he had his sentence vacated 
uh, after serving 25 years in prison because DNA evidence conclusively proved that when he went to jail 25 years ago, he was absolutely innocent. So he spent 25 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit, that he said he did not commit, and they finally were able to prove that he did not commit that crime. And so here's an example of where judgment and wrath comes upon a person that never should have. And so it's legitimate for us to ask, is, if, if God's wrath is going to be good, is it fair? Is he a good judge? And, of course, the answer is yes. God's judgment is good. But let's think about a little bit about why we can say that other than just because, hey, we're Christians. We have to say that. Right? So one of the things is that God knows everything. There's nothing that will happen that he doesn't know about. There's nothing that has happened that he doesn't know about. There are no blind spots. You can't go hide in a corner and do something without him knowing about it. You can't even think anything without him being aware of that. Okay? So when God exercises judgment, he has all of the facts. Not all of the opinions, all of the facts. And so we can have confidence that God, when he exercises judgment, he's doing it for good reason. Not only that, but he's the one who invented logic and rationality, and so when he uh, decides this is good or this is bad or this is right or this is wrong, he is using perfect judgment. Knows everything, uh, perfectly analyzes everything, so, so God is able to make the right judgment uh, and decide who really deserves wrath. This passage we just looked about talks about his, uh, how his judgment is based on what we do. If you look at chapter 2... Uh, In verses uh, 6 to 10, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. God does not base his judgment on anything other than what we have earned. So when we say, is God fair or good to be a wrathful God, we can say with confidence, yes, because he is basing his decisions on what we've actually done. If you've seen the, the movie Minority Report, that's this, this sci-fi thing where people look into the future and try to figure out what somebody's going to do and then arrest them before they do it. Okay? That would be the worst. You know, you're st- sitting here and all of a sudden somebody shows up and says, oh, you're arrested for murder. You're like, what did I do? Oh, you haven't done it yet. Right? That, would, that would be the worst. And, and God does not do that. He says, I am going to judge based off of what you do. This is what Paul is telling us here, is that judgment comes from what you've actually done. And added to that, verse 11 says that God shows no partiality. So God doesn't come up to the person that is wearing the right team sweatshirt and say, well, I'm going to let you off, and if you're wearing the wrong team sweatshirt, he's going to say, I condemn you. He doesn't come up to the rich person and say, "Uh, you're condemned because you're rich and because I want to, but this poor person over here, I'm going to let off the hook just because I feel like it. There's no partiality between him at all. He doesn't forgive men more than women, women more than men. He doesn't care about our skin color. He doesn't care about anything except for what we've actually done because he is perfectly fair. So when we ask the question, is God's wrath fair? Yes. He knows everything. He has 
perfect insight, perfect analysis. He is able to look at exactly what we've done and judge exactly what we've done without partiality. So that brings up an important question, okay? Who gets to experience God's wrath? Everyone who does wrong, is what we're told in this passage, is the one who gets to experience God's wrath. So uh, that could be of some concern to some of us. It says in verses 6 to 10, the part that I just read, that if you haven't done evil, you've got absolutely nothing to worry about. But if you have done evil, you should, frankly, be terrified. Because the one who has the most power, the one who has absolutely clear judgment says, if you have done wrong, that there is wrath and fury that is being stored up for you you because you have chosen to do what you ought not to do. So when we consider that, sometimes we have a tendency to kind of walk through God because it is true to say that, that God is a God of love. It is true to look at Jesus and say, look what God has done for us. And so we can go through life thinking, you know what, Uh, he's just going to let me off. If I've done something wrong, if I've done something evil, he's just going to kind of ignore it because that's kind of the God that he is. Uh, And yet um, it says in verse 8, excuse me, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 2. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So if God is good and and his wrath is part of his goodness and his wrath only comes on those who have done wrong, it makes sense for us to ask the question, uh, where do we sit with God? So I have a test for you. None of you wanted to come to church and take a test, but I've got a test for you. And we're going to be doing the test from this passage in Romans. So if you look at verse 29, uh, and I'll read through there, here's your test. And you don't have to actually raise your hand or anything like that. Just do it up here. Um, But this is what it says in the the second part of verse 29. Have you been full of envy? Have you ever murdered? Have you ever been full of strife? Have you caused disorder and chaos? Have you ever deceived anybody? Do you still now sometimes deceive people? Have you ever been malicious, like wanting what's not good for some other human being in front of you? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever said things about others that are not true? Have you ever hated God? Have you ever been insolent, spoken in a way that is disrespectful? Have you ever been haughty or boastful? Has your pride ever come to the surface? Have you ever thought of doing things that are evil, invented ways to get away with stuff? Have you ever been disobedient to your parents? Have you ever been foolish? And this refers to a moral foolishness. Have you ever done anything that is morally just doesn't make sense? Have you ever lacked faith? Have you ever had uh, circumstances where your heart was not for others? Have you ever been ruthless? If you have done any of these things, then this test is not going well for you. And if we look at verse 1, have you ever sat in judgment on others for doing these things? You know, there's this whole section in the middle of what we just read about 
people, men and women, exchanging natural relations to unnatural relations. And, and that's a hot topic in our society, and it's a hot topic within the church. And there's an opportunity there that we're not going to dig into there uh, to talk about why it's wrong to engage in those types of relationships. Right? But part of what we do when we do that is we say, look at them. And when we get into chapter 2, God is saying, no, look at yourself. Because even as you judge that type of immorality, you're doing that kind of immorality yourself, whether it's up here or actually physically or whatever, but you're guilty of that too. And if not right now, you were at some point. So we take this test, and when we ask who experiences God's wrath, it's us. It's everybody in this room. It's everybody that you know. Okay? So answering this question, can a good God be a God of wrath? The answer is absolutely. He's got to be a God of wrath because people do stuff wrong. There's evil. We like it when Hitler gets punished. God has to be a God of wrath. And yet, if we take that to its logical conclusion, to the place where the Bible says we are subject to that wrath as well. And there's a part of me that wanted to end this message right here to say, guess what? You're all going to hell and walk off the stage, okay? And and, and there's a reason that that part of me wanted to do that is because it is absolutely essential. If we want to understand what it means to have a Savior, we need to understand that we genuinely need to be saved, okay? But I'm not going to do that because that would be wrong, and I love you, okay? (laughs) Um, But I do want to sit for just a second, and I want you to think about the fact that if we lay all your cards on the table, just as if I lay all my cards on the table, I get condemned. You get condemned. Because we serve a perfectly good God who knows all those things that we have done wrong. Okay? That is a problem. And let's pray about that for just a second. Father, I'd ask right now that your spirit would convict us of how wrong we can be. God, I'd ask that you would not allow us to sit uh, focused on the things that we do right, but that we would be able to see healthily with your perspective uh, the the gross number of things that we've done wrong, the the ways that we have put ourselves in front of others, the the ways that we have denied you. God, I'd ask your spirit to, to, in us right now, convict us of that wrongdoing, of, of the, the ways in which we have fallen short. And rather, God, than, than us being deceived into thinking that you have to be somehow less wrathful than you are, God, I'd ask you to let us just sit for a minute and understand how we have earned your wrath because we do things which are wrong. God, I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I ask for that, as I ask God to convict us, I hope you're feeling that conviction, uh, but there's a, another chapter of the story, and it's not where Paul goes right where we're at, but we have to go there because it's super important, and that's this, okay? Uh, somehow I think my thing just clicked me one more, would you, Don? It's the devil getting into technology. Okay. So here's the thing. Christ died to pay for all of the wrath that you and I deserve. 
Okay? And that is such an important thing for us to grab hold of. And I, I'm not going to get into to gross detail with this. We just talked about this as our main subject two weeks ago. We will continue to talk about this as, as Paul digs into this further down in Romans. But I want you to understand right now okay, that when Christ went up on the cross, when he had nails stuck into his hands and feet, when he was flogged, when he had a spear stuck into his side, all of that was part of the physical reality of Christ paying the price for us, right? Because a perfectly good God cannot just say, hey, Daniel, it's okay. I don't care about all that stuff you you did. A perfectly good God has to maintain justice. And so my only hope, when I come down to the final judgment, when I stand before God and, and there's an accusation of guilt leveled against me, my only response is going to be, yes, guilty as charged. Okay? And when I've said, yes, guilty as charged, Jesus is going to say, Father, he's mine. I paid the price for him, so he doesn't have to pay that price. Okay? That is an absolutely amazing concept. And when we look at the wrath of God, which is so terrifying to us, and we realize that Christ stepped in to say, I will take that upon myself so my people do not have to. That is a massive, massive gift. And that's why we can say that this wrathful God is good. Because he is not only just in that he punishes that which is evil, but he has, in his grace and mercy, offered a free gift to us that we would be willing to put our faith in Jesus and that he would pay the price that we all deserve. And that's where Paul is pointing us to here. He's pointing us to the fact that you can't walk away from the fact that you deserve wrath but you can grab hold of Jesus who said, I will pay the price for you and I will give you eternal life. So if you know that, uh, if you already believe that, if you've already put your faith in Jesus, praise the Lord. I mean, this is, this is an opportunity to give thanks and it is also an opportunity to think about all those around you who do not know that, who are still subject to that wrath. Uh, I came up today to pray and, and was by myself in, in the pastor's office. And we have the opportunity every morning, every Sunday morning, to pray together. Okay? And, and part of what was weighing on me as I sat by myself praying was that I wonder if people are not here praying with me because they don't realize that doing so, sitting down before God and saying, hey, God, make a difference in people's lives, save them from the wrath that they deserve, will actually make a difference. And some of you pray all the time at home. Some of you couldn't make it early because you got family commitments and all that kind of stuff. But some of you just haven't probably grasped hold of the fact that it does make a difference when we look at the wrath of God coming on those around us, those we love, those that are our neighbors, that our willingness to engage in the spiritual battle through prayer is part of the way that they will come to this understanding that Jesus has paid the price for everybody so that we don't have to. Okay. So I would encourage you, in whatever way God has, has offered you the opportunity, I would cur- encourage you to engage in that battle for your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, uh, everybody that does not know Jesus because there's wrath coming. It's being stored up. It's holy and just and right, and it is unavoidable except if you put your faith in Jesus. And for those that might be sitting here that have not done that, you don't really understand what that means to put your faith in Jesus or you've heard it and you haven't really made 
the commitment to do that. Uh, when we're all done today, I'm going to be back there by that next steps table. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about it. We can go talk in, in private in the pastor's office if you want to. But there is no greater decision that you can make than to say, hey, Jesus, I want to take that gift that you've offered. I want to take hold of that and know that I will have eternal life, that I get to escape the wrath that I'm due for all the things that I've done wrong. So I hope as you consider the wrath of God, you don't see an evil God. You see a good God who not only is just, but who has given us, messed up as we are, a way to get out from underneath that wrath and to enjoy eternal life with him. Let's pray.